Well, this morning we come to Genesis chapter 28, so please go ahead and open your Bibles up there, Genesis 28. Now, last week when we studied chapter 27, if you were here, you remember that I left out verse 46 of Genesis chapter 27 because I said that it would tie in better with our study of chapter 28. So, and uh, if you were not here for last week's study, it is available on our website at loveoutreach.com and also on SoundCloud and iTunes for those that listen that way. But looking back now at the end of chapter 27 here in Genesis, we see that verse 46 of Genesis 27 says, And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like these who are the daughters of the land, what good will will my life be to me? So here we see in this verse that Rebecca is just completely disgusted with the women that live in the area around her here. Now, I'm not adding to this verse by saying that she was completely disgusted because if you take time to look up the Hebrew word for the word weary there in verse 46, you find that it's a word that means to loathe, to have a sickening dread, or to be disgusted. So again, Rebecca is just completely disgusted with these women that she calls the sons of Heth here that live in the same land where she is. Now, what exactly it is that disgusts her about these women, we're not told here. But one thing is for sure, she does not want her son Jacob to marry one of these women. And Rebecca does indeed favor Jacob over Isaac because, again, she understood, uh, I shouldn't say Jacob over Isaac, Jacob over Esau, her two boys. She kind of has a little favor toward Jacob because she understood the plan of God in the life of Jacob, right? As I pointed out to you last week, okay? But I'll go ahead and take a few moments to give you just a little insight here into these daughters of Heth, that so discuss Rebecca. First of all, who was this guy Heth anyway, right? Well, go ahead and mark this page somehow and turn back to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. And let's look down, and we'll start reading at um, verse 1. We'll look at verse 1. Now, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, you may remember that several weeks ago we uh, studied all of this, but here again we see that Noah had three sons. And the son of Noah that we're going to focus on right now there is Ham. So, So you see there in verse one that Noah had a son named Ham. Then looking down at verse six, it says the sons of Ham were Cush, Misraim, Put, and Canaan. So four sons for Ham, but the one I'm going to focus you on there is Canaan. And then if you look down at verse 15, it says Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. Okay, so now we find the guy that we're looking for, Heth. This is who Rebekah was talking about, the sons of Heth. He was the son of Canaan, the grandson of Ham, and the great-grandson of Noah. And if you remember back when we studied chapter 9 of Genesis, Canaan was cursed as a result of what his father Ham did to Noah, right? And the line of the people after that were always kind of a a troublemaking group in a sense, especially for the people of Israel. But we have found out now where this 
guy Heth came from, and from the line of Heth would come a group of people that would go on to be known as the Hethites, but also known throughout our Bible as the Hittites. Okay, so the people called the Hittites in the Bible came from Heth. So when Rebecca refers to the daughters of Heth, these were women that were from the people group of the Hittites. Her son Esau would actually marry a couple of these women, but this was not going to be the case for Jacob because again, Rebecca knew God's plan for Jacob was a special plan and she was watching over that and she was guarding that. She kind of kept it in her heart, I'm sure, since the birth of Jacob, because, well, actually, since they were in her womb, remember she had trouble in her womb when the, when the two twins were in her, and she sought out God in prayer, and she asked God what was going on, and God told her there would be two nations within her. So she had this in her heart, and she, and she was also told that the older would serve the younger, right? So she knew there was something special about Jacob. Kind of reminds me of Mary, and Joseph, and when Mary was, when the Lord came to Mary in that situation, the Lord God, she pondered those things. She kept those things in her heart, everything about Jesus. And she had to wait for the day when that promise, when she knew, well, basically when Jesus turned the water into wine, that was his first miracle. And that was probably a day of vindication for Mary when she understood all the things that she's pondered in her heart about this child from a baby have now come to fruition. Here he is, the son of God is on the earth, right? But now we see this in the life of Rebecca too. There was something special about Jacob and she knew it and she always guarded that and she protected that. And here she is intervening in even in saying, he will not marry one of these women. These women disgust me. They drive me up a wall. He will not marry one of them, okay? So as we flip back to Genesis chapter 28, verse one of Genesis 28 is a continuation of verse, 20, uh, uh, verse 46 in chapter 27. And it says, then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him, and said to him, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Okay, so what do we see happening there? Rebecca spoke and Isaac listened, okay? Rebecca had a say in who Jacob would marry and she was serious about this matter. She was not gonna settle for him marrying any of these women around there. Again, we didn't see, um, we didn't see that though when it came to who Esau married, right? We don't, we're not told anything about that. But remember, again, this Rebecca was told something special about Jacob, okay? He would be born last, but would have a certain priority in this life. And we will see that priority unfold as we continue through the pages of scripture Sunday after Sunday. We'll see what comes from the people of Jacob, you know, and, and God's plan through all the people of Jacob, right? So Rebecca, she stands up here. She makes her point to her husband, Isaac, and Isaac, her husband, honored her in what she stated. And with that thought in mind, I, I wanna take a, a few moments and show you some passages of scripture from the, the New Testament that speak to the topic of a wife receiving honor. You know, as, as you've sat with me now for a while, you know that certain things pop in my head when I study something. And as I see um, Isaac honoring what Rebecca said here, it brings to mind that topic for me. So I'm gonna jump over on into that topic with you and have you turn to 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter chapter three. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, of course, is writing this, and he's giving some um, practical advice to both wives and husbands, okay? And in 1 Peter chapter 3, if you look down at verse 7, it says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them 
with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. So that's a pretty powerful and an extremely important thing for us to know here this morning. Because you really don't want, as a man, you really don't want for your prayers to be hindered, do you? And the Word of God here tells husbands how to avoid that. And that is by giving honor to our wives. Now, look, if you are a married man or a married woman, then you have been blessed in this life to go through this life with someone else. And and you really should take time to consider that fact and count your blessings in regards to that. You and your spouse, as it says, as Peter says there, are heirs together of the grace of life. We are heirs together of the grace of life. Okay, So it is a tremendous blessing to have a spouse to go through this life with. And we saw the example back in Genesis 28 of Isaac taking heed to something that really mattered to the heart of Rebecca, something that was really deeply rooted in her heart. She cared about who her son was going to marry, right? And she was serious about this, right? And she was a godly woman. And she was caring about a godly situation, who her son was going to marry. It was important to her. And we see that Isaac honored that, right? And like I brought up earlier, when I say that Rebecca was a godly woman, because I brought up that example of when she was pregnant, and something was going on inside of her, what did she do? She sought God in prayer about the situation, okay? And if you were to go back here in this chapter and read verse from verse one and read on through verse six, you'll see what a godly wife looks like, what a godly wife is to be like. She is someone that understands that in God's plan, she is a weaker vessel, This is simply a part of God's ordained plan for the order of a marriage, for a marriage to function properly. But of course, if people have been influenced by our ungodly society for the past 100 years or so, then for a woman to accept herself today as a weaker vessel may be difficult, but God has spoken in his word and it is settled. It is the perfect Order. It is the perfect antidote for a marriage for a woman to realize this because God is good and he knows what he's doing to say the least. And the husband, if he is a true man of God, will understand that he is to give honor to his wife as the weaker vessel. Both parties keep up their end of the deal in God's order, right? Now I don't know now I know that we don't see many many godly men and godly women in our society today but there is no excuse for us who profess Jesus and see the plain facts of the word of God there's no excuse for us not to live it right and again this is what we're seeing this is what jumped out to me in the life of Isaac and Rebecca as Rebecca shared her heart about this situation Right? This is what we can take from that as a life application thing in our own lives, how we can apply it to our lives today. And as we turn back to Genesis 28, Isaac has now summoned or called to him his son Jacob, and he lays it on the line to him. Okay, And we, I can fill in the blanks and say, hey, look, this is what your mom has said, and this is what she means, and I'm agreeing with her here, right? Scripture doesn't tell us that, but this is the picture that we get here, right? And he goes on in verse two of Genesis 28, and he says to his son Jacob, Isaac says to Jacob, arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples. 
and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So we just continue here as we read these scriptures, we just continue to see God's plan unfold as it pertains to the land that he has given to a certain group of people, the chosen people, the Israelites. In verse three there, as Isaac again blesses Jacob in sending him off to find his wife, Isaac there pronounces that from Jacob would come an an assembly of peoples. This would be a group of people that were to stay together. We will see when we get to Exodus and we'll, we'll, we will learn about them being set free from slavery in Egypt, that they will travel together as an assembly of peoples. And these are the people of Jacob, the Israelites. The land will belong to them, given to them by God himself. Think about it for a moment. Is there any other land on the face of the earth in all of history where God the creator spoke and said that this land will belong to this specific group of people, right? We are Americans as we sit here this morning. Is there any record anywhere where God spoke and said that this land is our land? God spoke that. Now, of course, we have made it our land. We have established a nation. And at least in the beginning of this nation, we recognize the sovereignty of God. We were a Christian nation, for sure. We now live, unfortunately, in a a different time where we're we're not recognized as a Christian nation and our leaders are stating we're not. But even still, America is not a land that God specifically gave to a certain people group as an inheritance. But with the Holy Land, Israel, that is indeed the case. The Israelites, the people of Jacob, were the chosen people for this chosen land. And a remnant of that people group will always exist. So there's a whole lot to learn in verses three and four there, and much that you can go deeper into in your personal study time. But let's move on. Verse five continues and says, so Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take himself a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. Also, Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nabajah, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. Okay, so let's pause right there because what we're seeing here in verses six through nine, what's happening here is that Esau is taking notice to what's going on in the life of his brother Jacob. And he's wanting to find a way to please his father as well, right? He wants to be pleasing to his dad as well. So on his own, he makes a decision to go and get yet another wife. And he thinks that by so, by, that by so doing, he will please his father because he's not going to take this wife from among the Canaanites, the, the, the women that discuss the Hittites, right? The same line of people. These women that discussed it, Rebecca, Esau says, okay, I'm not going to go out and get, I want to get another wife, but it's not going to be one of them. But rather he goes and he takes an Ishmaelite, right? So you see with Esau here, this is a case of a man trying to make something happen on his own. That's what we can get a picture of here. He has missed out on his birthright his father's blessing, he feels slighted and he's sitting back and he's watching Jacob be blessed and he's watching Jacob be obedient to his parents 
But you see, we all must understand something here this morning. And that is, is that God has a plan. And it's a grand plan. It's, it's grander than anything we can ever fathom. But God also has a plan for our lives as individuals. But it's not the same that it is for the next guy or for the next girl. The plan that God has for your life is not the same as it is for the next person. And we need to find contentment in regards to our lot in this life. See, you see, so many people fall into this kind of trap that we see with Esau here. He's looking on someone else's life and he's comparing himself to someone else, right? And a lot of us fall into that trap. It may be a brother or a sister, some other family member or some friend or something like that. And rather than just seeking God's will for our lives as individuals, we sit around moping about what the next person has and what we don't have. And we fall into that trap of comparing ourselves and we spend, we waste our time trying to be like someone else rather than just seeking God and being content for who he has made us to be, right? So that's what we ought to do in this life is seek God for who, for what he desires from us. Don't set your eyes on other people to try and find out who you are or who you are not. Set your eyes on Jesus, right? Set your eyes on his will for your life. We are each very different and we are all known by God as individuals. And we've got to keep that in mind. And again, the reason I'm bringing this topic up is because as we read verses six through nine there, we see this is what Esau's doing. He's looking on a situation and saying, what can I do to be pleasing in my father's eyes? What can I do? And, and he's comparing himself rather than just seeking God and being in God's will, right? So now as I bring up this fact that God looks at us as individuals, I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 33, Psalm 33. Psalm 33, and looking down at verse 13, Psalm 33, 13, the Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. He considers all their works. So think about that. Our Lord God, all-powerful, all-knowing, he looks down upon man's Mankind, right? And he fashions each one of our hearts individually. That's powerful. That's life impacting if you will let it be. Yes, we may have many things in common. You may look like your father. You may look like your mother, your brother, your sister. Certain people groups can strongly resemble one another. But God has fashioned our hearts individually. Our hearts are fashioned individually by God. You've heard the scripture, man looks upon the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So again, we can't make the mistake of comparing ourselves to each other and trying to be just like each other. Our society today is all about getting people to look and act just like each other, right? They'll proclaim individuality, but they want to sell you everything that makes you look just like the next person the person next to you, right? But we, when we look to God, we realize that God is concerned with our hearts. And yes, you know, who we are internally will be reflected externally in our lives, but the people around us, when we come to God and we submit to God and they'll see our uniqueness and they'll desire what we have, that we're people that seek God and we've placed his will and his purpose in our lives first rather than 
being a people that wants to be just like everyone else or compare ourselves to everyone else and be sad for what we don't have or the, the life that we do have. We need to realize that God is involved in our lives and he is fashioning our hearts, right? Let me take this topic a little further with you here this morning. Turn to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to expound even a little more about this topic of how God cares about you as an individual and how he wants something specifically for your life as an individual. What's taken place in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as you turn there is that the Apostle Paul is teaching the, the believers in the city of Corinth about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, Right? And I'll go through some of these scriptures with you, but what I'm going to draw your attention to here this morning is the fact that we are individuals. Our hearts have been fashioned by our Lord God to be such, to be individuals, right? But let's look down here uh, and start reading at verse 11. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. Paul has now spoken about some spiritual gifts, and he goes on to say here in verse 11, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. So check that out. Even the Spirit of the Lord distributes spiritual gifts to people individually. You are not me. I am not you. I do what I do in the body of Christ, and you need to take your place in the body of Christ and do what you do, and we will all do what we do because it is the Holy Spirit that is gifting us as individuals to do it. Paul continues to explain this. He says in verse 12, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we have all been baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Okay, so what we see here is Paul's pointing out that we, as the body of Christ, we are an assembly of peoples. Okay, we all have that in common. And that is Christ is our focus. And we are a part of the body of Christ, but we are in this body as individuals, okay? So the word of God here is really stressing to us the importance of realizing that the body of Christ is not just made up of one spiritual gift. And you know what? The sad part of Christianity today is that people in the body of Christ make the mistake of elevating one person's gift over the gift of another person. Too many churches today lift pastors up into positions that the word of God does not place them in and, and the pastors then become power freaks, okay? Now I do indeed know that God has called me to do the work of a pastor and the spirit has gifted me to do that since I was first saved and I do the work of a teacher as well, and this too I do as the Spirit leads me and gifts me, and I rest in this calling. And, and I am also willing, if the Spirit of the Lord leads me, to go into a completely different direction in the body of Christ. I, I don't own any spiritual gifts. To me, they belong to the Holy Spirit, and He distributes them to each one individually as He wills. And I live every day saying, if, if God gifts me in a different way, then I'm going to move on to that. I'm going to move on from how I'm used in the body of Christ today and go do what God has for me to do. But for, day, but for today and for several years now, he's kept me in this position doing what I'm doing. But my gifting is not any more important than anyone else's gifting in the body of Christ. I am just one individual who by faith does what I do, and I don't compare myself to any other pastor. I don't compare myself to any other Bible teacher. I'm not the end-all, be-all. You know, many people may listen to me teach and disagree. Many people may listen to me teach and not be influenced in 
any way at all, but that doesn't hinder me from continuing on because I'm not doing what I'm doing to be pleasing to any man or woman, right? I don't need a building like the next guy's building. I don't need a certain number of people. All I need to do on a daily basis is follow Christ and go as his spirit leads me, right? And it would be a tragedy if any person would found their life or base their Christianity upon me, okay? So, and I just want to continue to exhort people that I teach to know you, to know your place in the body of Christ, to know that God has made you as an individual, that God has fashioned your heart individually, and that there's a place for you in God's plan, and that he has a purpose and a will for your life. Again, I'm tying this back to what Esau was doing in looking at Jacob's life and saying, hey, you know, look what he's doing. He's being obedient to his father. He's being blessed. He's getting everything. I'm going to go out and make something happen on my own rather than just saying, hey, God, what's your will for my life? I'm not that person. I'm not my brother. I'm not my sister. I'm not the next guy. I'm who you made me to be. What do you want me to be? And and in explaining the ridiculousness of all of this, Paul goes on here in verse 15 to give some, you know, another analogy on this. He says, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. So there's that word again, right? Just be the individual that God has for you to be. God has fashioned your heart as an individual. Don't waste your time in this life trying to be like someone else. But many people in this world, especially our youth today, right? And maybe even when we were all youth, we we fell into the trap of wanting to be like someone else, wanting to be like the next girl, like the next guy, whatever, whatever it is, rather than realizing that we have a God that has fashioned our hearts individually. And he has a plan and he has a purpose for us in this life. So as we flip back to Genesis chapter 28 now, again, Esau, that could have been the choice he made is just to seek God for his will, for his life, rather than comparing himself to his brother Jacob and trying to please his father in that way. But pleasing man is not God's plan for us Pleasing God is what God wants us to do. And as we continue on now, verse 10 of Genesis 28 says, Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and he put it at his head and he lay down in that place to sleep. So Jacob's got a pretty hard pillow here. This should make you want to be very thankful for the pillows that we have today, right? Verse 12 continues, Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. 
the land of which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Okay, so again here, God just continues to establish the land that is going to belong to the people of Jacob, the Israelites. This latter is simply symbolic of the fact that this land where Jacob was lying at that moment is directly blessed by God. God gives Jacob this dream, confirming in him that this is the land that God will do his work from. The latter goes from heaven to that land where Isaac or uh, where Jacob was laying, right? Verse 14 says, also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the children of Israel would spread out everywhere, just as the dust of the earth does. The wind picks up the dust and spreads it everywhere, doesn't it? And, and the Israelites, even though they were an assembly of peoples, they have spread out over all the nations of the earth as well. And notice there at the end of verse 14, it says, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You and I sit here this morning blessed because from the seed of Jacob, from the seed of Israel, as Jacob will later be named, right? From that seed came the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And in him, we are all blessed. And all the families of the earth, whether Jew or non-Jew, can be blessed in Jesus because it came from that seed. But the land, the land we, know, we now know of as the country of Israel, that's where it all began. And that's why the land today is still called the Holy Land because God established his work on the earth there. Verse 15 continues, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So do you see the security, the safety that is spoken by God in that verse? Wherever the people of Jacob the Israelites go, God will keep them. He will guard this assemblies of people. They may leave the land, they may be scattered away from it, but he will never leave them. And he will bring them back to the land as history has proven that God indeed has done. And he will fulfill what he has spoken. And you know what? We as born again believers in Jesus Christ today, we have been grafted into this assemblies of people. We are, as the result of the blood of Christ, we are children of God. He will never leave us and he will complete the work that he has begun in us. As I taught about last week, he has begun a good work in us. He will be faithful to complete it. And someday we will ever be with him. So God has given Jacob this dream here about all of this. And in verse 16, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob really understood this dream. He understood that God was making a statement that by having this ladder upon the earth in this dream, that this land was going to be the land in which God would work through a certain group of people to accomplish his ultimate will on this earth. And what was the ultimate will of God? Salvation, salvation. You see, we know today that the land of Israel is not the way to God, is it? The land of Israel is not the way to God today. Jesus is the way to God. But Jesus would come from the seed of Jacob and from the land of Israel. And in that seed, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed in Jesus. Jacob's dream was indeed a statement from God assuring that this future assemblies of people, that they would be kept saved, kept safe, right? By God. But ultimately, God would, from this assemblies of people, bring the Messiah, whom 
In him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. To be holy today, we don't need to go to the Holy Land. We don't need to go to Israel. We simply need to come to Christ, to be set free, to be born again, to be a holy people, a set-apart people. So Jacob, he woke up in the middle of the night from this dream, and he realized all of this. And then verse 18 says, Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city had been Luz previously. Now, why did Jacob call the place Bethel? Well, because back there in verse 17, he stated that this place was the house of God. And that's what the name Bethel means house of God. Again, I want to reiterate that today we understand from the totality of scriptures, we understand that the house of God is not any physical place. Today, many make the mistake of thinking that a building made by the hands of man can be the house of God. But in scriptural reality, the house of God is in our hearts today. A born-again believer is the house of God. The Spirit of God indwells a person that has come to faith in Jesus Christ. Let me just quickly show you what I'm talking about. Mark this page and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 14. John chapter 14. John 14, and we'll look down at verse 23. It says, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So you see, God's home is inside of the person that loves him and keeps his word. That's the house of God. Inside that person that loves God and keeps his word. Do you love God this morning? Do you keep his word? Then you are a house of God this morning. Okay, so go ahead and turn back to Genesis Genesis 28. You see, again, many people make the mistake today that it, they, they think it's about a building. They think it's about their religion, their church establishment and such. But again, as we look at the totality of scriptures, we find that this is not the case. Jacob here in Genesis 28 is just a man. God has chosen to use this man, however, to bring forth his ultimate plan. And Jacob, being a man, will do some things here that men tend to do. And that is, is that they think that God really needs our intervention to accomplish his will. And let me show you what I mean. Let's read on verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Now, let me ask you something. Did God really need this vow from Jacob? Did this vow of Jacob influence God's will being done at all? No, it did not. Because the people of Jacob would actually go on from this point in time to fail God time and time again. They will fall into idolatry. They will rob God from his tithes. They will do many things that prove they are nothing more than mere men and women. So this vow didn't really amount to anything. Right? And many people vow many things today and it doesn't really amount to anything. Do you know that we have 
history in our Bible of the failures of the children of Israel. And it really speaks to the failures of all of us as mankind in general, right? And as we prepare to wrap it up this morning, let's turn to the book of Acts chapter seven. The New Testament book of Acts chapter seven. Again, Jacob makes a vow back there in Genesis 28. But the people of Jacob would go on to live in a manner contrary to God in many ways. And here in Acts chapter 7, Stephen spends some time pointing out the failures of the Israelites. You can read the whole chapter on your own, but for now, let's look down and start reading at verse 44. Acts chapter 7, verse 44, this is Stephen proclaiming, right? He's saying, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern he had seen, which our fathers, having received it, in turn also brought with Joseph into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. Okay, so pause right here, because what's being spoken of there in verse 46 is the fact that David had favor with God and wanted to build a house for God. But God wouldn't let that happen. But instead, verse 47 tells us here, but Solomon built him a house. But look, here's what we know today, folks. Verse 48, however, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has has my hand not made all things? So you see, God is too awesome, too powerful, too big, if you will, to dwell in buildings that are made by man. God needs nothing that we give to him. God simply wants to indwell us by his spirit and lead us through this life by his Holy Spirit. Stephen rebukes these religious leaders here. And in verse 51, he says to them, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your father did, so do you. So do you see that there? He called them uncircumcised in heart and ears. They wouldn't hear what the Spirit of the Lord was saying to them in their hearts because to them it was all about their religion. It was all about them building their house for God, putting God into their box, right? Fashioning God into their liking. Isn't this the way of religion today? But what does God want from us? He wants us to be circumcised in our hearts, changed on the inside, the cutting away of the flesh of our hearts. He wants us to be there, right? And then he does what? He makes his home within us as we saw that Jesus stated, right? So we need to be the individual that God has for us to be. Seek God's will for our lives. Don't compare ourselves to others. Don't try to be like others, right? But here's the thing though. The starting point in seeking God is surrender. We must die to ourselves, cast aside our religion, meaning don't try to fashion God into our liking, read his word, understand his will, obey his word, do his will. Hear what the spirit of the Lord is calling you in your heart to do and submit to that. Don't look at the person next to you. God indeed has a place for you in this life, but you will not get there by making vows and promises. You will not get there by setting your eyes on other people and what they're doing and how they're living or seeing how they may be blessed and how you may not be. Instead, drop all of that 
and just surrender your life to God and say, Lord God, your will be done, okay? You, we will only get there though by letting go of all that we are and all that we wanna be and all of our desires and just allowing the Lord to take up residence in our hearts and not, you know, cause it's easy for us to become stiff necked and we become so stiff necked that we're, we're only looking in one direction and we never turn to see other things that God might have for us. And we're just looking at one thing and we're setting our hearts on one thing rather than saying, God, what do you have for me? Or we make the mistake like Esau of looking at someone else and saying, oh, I gotta try and make something happen so I can be as blessed as that guy. But God fashions our hearts individually and he has a plan and a purpose for us as individuals. But to get there, we've got to surrender. We've got to die to it all and say, God, let your will be done in my life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, I thank you, God, for the opportunity that, that we all have, Lord, to, to just pause during the week and to open your word, Lord. This is just one time, one gathering, one brief meal sitting in your word, sitting at your word here, Lord. But Lord, now we go forth into a new week, Lord. And as the old song says, we need thee every hour. Every hour we need you, Lord. Each and every step we take in this life, Lord, is so easily, Lord, so easy, Lord, to, to get distracted, to get off course in this life. But your word draws us back in, Lord. And I pray that each one of us here individually will be members of the body of Christ, that we would love one another and exhort one another to good works and that we would gather together all the more as we see the day approaching, Lord, but we will, that, that we will understand that you have a place for us in your body, that you have a will for us. And Lord, I just pray that your will be done for each one of us as individuals. So we thank you for this time, Lord God. We thank you for your love, and your grace, Lord. And I also, Lord, take a moment to pray now for Joshua, Lord, who has pneumonia. Lord, Lori's home with Joshua. And we just pray for him, Lord, and we ask that you would touch and that you would heal and that you would clear up his lungs, Lord, that you would just restore him to good health, Lord. We pray for Bonnie as well, Lord, who has been suffering with vertigo, Lord, and has been uh, even in a hospital for that, Lord, we just pray for her. We just ask that you would touch and you would heal her body as well, Lord. But Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege and the honor that we have to gather here in your name. We just acknowledge you in this all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.